Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on The Shorter Catechism, where two pastors take 20-something months to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Parker, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinneweber. Happy interview day, everyone. Today's interview, we're very excited to have uh, as our guest, Dr. Michael Allen. He is the professor of systematic theology at RTS Orlando. Dr. Allen has written a number of books on uh, different parts of systematic theology, and uh, he's written one that's very helpful um, concerning our topic of discussion today, sanctification. Dr. Allen, thanks for joining us on The Shorter today. Thanks for having me, Stephen and Tommy. I appreciate it. Uh, first, Dr. Allen, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your family, maybe your own little spiritual history, your role there at RTS? Yeah, so I moved to Orlando and to RTS almost six years ago with my wife, Emily, and our two boys. Um, and uh, we have lived in a variety of places uh, in Florida, up in the Midwest, uh, and then before marriage in a, a variety of places as well. Um, both my wife and I grew up in the households of Presbyterian pastors. Um, and so it's, it's probably, uh, predestined that I too am, am a Presbyterian teaching elder, uh, and serve very part-time, uh, at our PCA church, uh, as well as having the privilege to teach systematic theology, historical theology, um, even the occasional exegesis course at RTS and, and serving as academic dean there. Awesome. So as you're aware, this is a podcast on the Shorter Catechism. So when were you first introduced to it? Yeah, so when I was in either kindergarten or first grade, I, I, I can't quite pick the year out, but it was around that time, uh, my church began a, an intentional program of catechizing children. And so I have vivid memories. In fact, I, I remember the man who played the lead role uh, for the kids of our age in sort of guiding and instructing and giving shape to that. And uh, that was not abnormal. I mean, I'd grown up in a, a Presbyterian context, um, but that was a sweet part of the many different moving parts of being uh, instructed and discipled in that congregation, in that context. And as you've been introduced to it in your own personal life, but also at the seminary at you know the, the great place called RTS Orlando, I call it the O, um, so how have you seen it helpful in maybe your own personal life, but also, you know, there at RTS training ministers for the gospel. I know they have to take a test to, to get out of there uh, or sure, yeah, to, they, to graduate. Get out of there. Come on, yeah. Tommy. They've, they've got to memorize it and, and they're examined on that. I, I would say um, a couple things are especially helpful. I mean, one would be, um, you know, we have a lot of students who've grown up. Uh, in the church and in, in Presbyterian context where the catechism might be a part of it. But we have a ton of students who are more recent converts, perhaps in a college ministry like Tommy's. Um, and so it provides sort of basic grammar for the faith for our students. Uh, they're going to be doing Greek and Hebrew and reading stuff that's far more technical and advanced. Uh, but it's really helpful to them to have uh, some sort of straightforward um, language that's given to them to, to kind of map out their understanding of the faith. 
Um, and then I would say for students who come in and, and perhaps they've been well catechized or just really well instructed one way or another as children and young adults, it helps uh, them as well uh, in helping them identify what are, what are first order, what are second order uh, kind of matters of the faith and practice. What are things that ought to capture their imagination? It's so easy when you're studying so much in such great detail uh, to lose a sense of balance and proportion. And I think the catechism can help them have a, a map for the forest lest they lose it, sort of peering at this or that tree. Uh, and I find that to be helpful for myself, uh, that it continues to provide, uh, along with you know, the confession of faith itself, a, a map of kind of uh, what are major concerns and what are the, the, the big questions with regard to each of those concerns. Uh, and that, that guides me, and I know that continues to guide our students year after year. So, Dr. Allen, do you have a favorite shorter catechism question? I do. Uh, actually, mine uh, that, that comes to mind would be number two, uh, sort of the, maybe it's because I'm a middle child. Uh, everybody knows number one, of course, if they know anything from the catechism. Uh, but number two builds on it and uh, sort of moves to a, a related but further point when it asks, what rule is God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? And the answer is the word of God contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. And it's, it's just that powerful statement of pairing that really basic Christian idea that we're made to glorify and enjoy God, to, to commune or fellowship with him, uh, with a really distinctly Protestant and Reformed understanding of the importance of God's word, not just at the beginning of our Christian life, but throughout the totality of it. And I just find that to be uh, sort of a watchword that's necessary for every day um, for myself, as well as a new believer. Well, thank you, Dr. Allen. And Today, the question that we brought you on for is question 35, what is sanctification? And I'll read that answer just to get us started. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Question 35 here, touching on sanctification, uh, it's I think by God's grace, been a topic of discussion in the uh, you know evangelical church of late, and uh, for good reason. Um, it's very important. You know, it's a part of what God has saved us to. We've been uh, you know elected in Christ for good works, and those being sanctification. Now, there can be a lot of confusion surrounding sanctification, though. Does this language that sanctification is the work of God's Spirit? negate or deny human effort in the sanctification process? Is sanctification 100% God or 100% man or sort of this 50-50 type deal? And where would you take us in scripture to kind of ground us in how we should understand sanctification? Yeah, I think that's an important question, Stephen. It's a, it's a reminder that different topics aren't unrelated. If I were to say I'm going to pay your mortgage this month, you would not pay it. And my paying it would mean you wouldn't pay it um, because you and I act in a way that's sort of competitive. If I do something, you don't have to do it. If you do it, I don't have to do it. Uh, we take up the same space. 
Uh, and we just got to remember, God doesn't compete for space. He's not another object or person in the universe in the same way you and I are. And so that's why when we read scripture and we hear it talking about sanctification, we can encounter stuff that frankly sounds odd at first glance. You know, like the catechism says, uh, First Thessalonians 5 concludes, well, it gets to the very ending. It climaxes with a benediction. You know, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And after saying a couple more things, it concludes and it says, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. So it sounds like sanctification is a gift and God does it. And that's crucial. The first thing we've got to say is this is part of the gospel promise. This is the kindness of Jesus Christ. He will surely do it. Um, but oddly, that doesn't mean that we aren't called also to action and to duty. If you read just prior to that in 1 Thessalonians 5, from verses 12 to 22, there are a variety of different moral exhortations, warnings, and counsels that are given. Uh, they can include the passive, don't quench the spirit, or the active, hold fast what's good. Um, it can talk about renouncing other things, abstain from every evil. In a variety of ways, there are different things we're to fend off, we're to hold on to, we're to, to keep ourselves away from. There are all sorts of moral duties that are conveyed there. So I think when we think about sanctification, we've got to realize that God does it and gives it, and that actually energizes our action. It doesn't nullify or make that somehow unnecessary. It actually gives, you might say, legs to it and life to it. And that's one of the great gifts of the gospel. God acts in such a way that it actually brings us life, and we live that life. And, and we could go to a range of other texts, but that's just one really blunt and, and powerful one, I think. That's very helpful. And as you were talking, you know, immediately what comes to mind is Philippians chapter 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And that sounds like it's, you know, me-oriented for because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he energizes us for sanctification. So it's, it's this gift of God, as you've described, that informs our behaviors, our will, and, and uh, yeah, everything that we do. So, and that's really helpful too, right? Because if sanctification was based purely upon my own will or desire, we wouldn't, we wouldn't make it, would we? Yeah. yeah, and I think we can say it's understandable that people struggle here because every other relationship works differently, because every other relationship is with fellow human creatures. And so it's not surprising this is an area that people are especially prone to, to not being able to take in all the Bible says. But that's the richness and goodness of the gospel. That This is a different sort of relationship. This is a covenant fellowship where we deal not with a, a peer and a fellow creature, but uniquely here, we deal with God, and uh, that's strange, but its glory comes with its strangeness. Second question for you. The Catechism says that sanctification, that the goal of sanctification really is renewing the whole man after the image of God. We're made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, holiness. Um, but could you make that concrete for us? What, what do we mean when we say we're being renewed after the image of God? Aren't we his image already? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Uh, I think there's really three facets to what's going on there, and, and all of them are important. The first is to say that it uses the verb renewed. God renews us or he makes us new because sin has wrecked us. It has depraved us. It's distorted us. And there are a number of different terms that are accurate and necessary to convey the totality of how every facet of us has been thrown off and affected negatively by sin. And so God is, is renewing and restoring. He's also newly creating. Um, you know, there are different images used. Uh, there's the circumcision of the heart in Deuteronomy. Uh, but other prophets will speak of the taking out of the old heart and the putting in the new heart. Different vivid pictures that give us slightly different angles on just how significant um, that work of renewal is. Um, secondly, it's renewal of the whole man or we might say the whole man or woman, uh, the whole Christian. There's not a single part of me sin hasn't wrecked and depraved, and the gospel is just as wide as is the fall. Uh, God actually, he, he reconciles me in my totality. He renews me in my totality. Uh, so it's not for nothing. That text I mentioned from 1 Thessalonians 5 says, he'll sanctify you completely. Uh, it talks about the wholeness of the person, mind, soul, spirit, body, etc. Uh, and then the third thing it, it highlights here is that the image of God is uh, that after which we are renewed in our totality. And I think there's two things we ought to say. Um, one, that the image of God is most fully seen in Jesus Christ. Uh, and so we are renewed to be like him. Uh, Romans 8 tells us that you know, that's the point of our predestination, that we would be conformed unto him, uh, that we would be sons and daughters like he is the great and true son. Um, but also that he is the true and perfect Adam. And so there's a creational root to this, that, that we will actually be restored and renewed according to what it means to be human, to, to God's good design that was first given before the fall in the goodness of creation. Um, and so we will be more than Adam was. We will be eventually glorified in Christ, uh, but we'll never be less. And renewal and sanctification, uh, they bring us more in tune with what it means to be a human creature, to live in step with human nature, to rightfully image God as Christ did, and as God graces us and sanctifies us, as we eventually will. In our conversation with Dr. Guy Waters, we talked about justification, and we learned in our conversation with him that justification is used in several senses in the Bible. We talked about the Roman Pauline way in which justification is used, legal justification, but then also the demonstrative sense of justification as it's put forward in James 2. This language of Sanctification also has multiple meanings depending on its context. Could you define for our listeners the difference between definitive and progressive sanctification? Yeah. So uh, in a similar way, we can speak of how sanctification language gets used to describe both what happens when we are converted, when we are united with Christ, uh, and then also what continues to happen, as, as Westminster gives us language, more and more over the long haul, we might say. 
And so theologians have used terms that the Bible itself doesn't provide, but they're just clarifying what the Bible repeatedly conveys in different ways. There's a, a definitive holiness or sanctification that is ours in Jesus Christ. Uh, he himself is our sanctification just as much as he's our justification or redemption, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30. But there's also that increasing and ongoing setting apart and devoting of ourselves unto God, according to his word, by his spirit, always by his renewing grace, that increasingly marks men and women and children who do grow up in Jesus Christ. Um, and that's what we refer to as progressive sanctification. Um, we ought to acknowledge that actually, if you, if you find the actual word to sanctify in the New Testament, it more often than not refers to that first gift of definitive converting sanctification. And a range of other words uh, are used by and large most of the time to refer to the ongoing sanctifying or progressive work of God. Uh, both are crucial. And so we're trying to, to not lose one for the sake of, of emphasizing the other. We're trying to attend to the whole counsel of God and to see the, the breadth of what the gospel provides, both this converting change that's once and for all and definitive before God, as well as God's ongoing commitment. Like you mentioned in, in uh, Philippians, that word that, you know, we can work out our salvation for, for God is at work, Right. He's committed. He hasn't just acted once, but he continues to act on our behalf and in us to the end. I appreciate how you tied that definitive sanctification and how it usually accompanies these ideas of being justified once and for all, the punctiliar act of God in our salvation. And in 1 Corinthians 6, it proves what you were saying. And such were some of you, but you were washed definitively. You were sanctified you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So what our catechism's doing is not denying definitive sanctification, but clarifying that justification and definitive sanctification, we'll call it that, are punctiliar, a once and for all kind of operation. But the progressive idea is going to continue our whole life long. And sanctification, uh, as we said at the head, for some people, there's a lot of confusion surrounding it, um, a lot of misunderstandings or misconceptions. What do you think are some pretty popular misconceptions surrounding this, this really beautiful doctrine? Yeah, I, I would say two can be really perhaps subtle, and the subtle error is always the, the most challenging. There, there are obvious errors that sometimes we don't like to face up to, but we, we can at least identify our failing and know that we ought to feel remorse, even if we're not yet brought to contrition. Uh, that the real danger is the subtle one that we don't see, like the fish in water. And the two that come to mind uh, would be first that uh, sanctification can be so easily identified with just the social mores of a religious subgroup, uh, which can easily be identified with the social mores of whatever area and culture of the world or cultures that I inhabit. Um, because sanctification does involve all of our life, it's according to the whole man. It involves social and relational capacities. It involves piety and liturgy. Uh, it involves what I do with my body, with my money, with my family, with my neighborhood and city. 
It takes in everything. And that means that it's easy to sort of confuse my national civic identity with my Christian calling to holiness, uh, whatever that national civic identity might be, or my family patterns and so forth. And so a constant struggle for the church through the ages in all sorts of settings has been uh, what is really involved in holiness and how do we not allow what's normal to me, to my family, my people, my context to somehow be identified with or confused with that um, as if I would baptize that and expect that of other Christians. And, and that, that'd be one challenge. A second challenge would be uh, that, you know, it's, it's very common to equate sanctification with simply not sinning, uh, which is a crucial part. Growing more and more holy means sinning less and less in various aspects, but it also means growing in devotion to God. In other words, sanctification isn't just defined negatively by getting sin out or reducing sin. It's also defined positively by bringing in goodness and glory because it brings in devotion to God. Uh, We get this going all the way back to the great book on holiness, Leviticus, where it's about not just uh, getting clean, but also being made sacred or devoted, set apart. And as the scripture unpacks this idea throughout its pages from that point on, uh, we see that, you know, there's both putting to death of sin, what we call mortification, as well as uh, bringing about this new life that is fixed upon God and his kingdom and his ways, what we call vivification or the the making alive. Um, Both of those play a role. And I think Not surprisingly, because it's easier to identify, we can sometimes narrow and focus just on, I need to not cuss or cheat or sleep around or get angry and hate people or whatever. I need to not sin. Uh, It's it's sometimes more challenging and thus more easily uh, forgotten that I need to be increasingly devoted to God, Um, that vivification. Um, and, And... That would be a danger, but it's one that I think we can appreciate how that happens, uh, as well as identify that can be really problematic when that does happen and I don't identify. So put off and put on, right? The the vivification, um, doing righteousness. Dr. Allen, as earlier, we talked about the progressive nature of our sanctification, or in other words, just growing in our faith. And as I talk to believers, in particular college students, you know, they're often frustrated that they're not growing as fast as they think they should. Mm-hmm. So what, you know, a couple of questions, what are some clues that we are growing or being sanctified? And then what are some resources or tools for our sanctification? What does, what, what has God given to us to help us in this process? Sure. Yeah. Again, we want to remember this is renewal in the whole man after the image of God. And so it's important to think across the totality of our life. Uh, And because it's progressive and it's something that will not be completed in this lifetime, it'll it'll be completed in glory, uh, we do need to realize God's in it for the long haul, and he shows steadfast, patient love for us. And so I shouldn't presume that everything in me is going to be fixed today or tomorrow. But I should be watchful again, across the totality of my life, my relationships, 
my use of resources, capital, whether that's my body, my circumstance, my connections, my money, my time. Uh, as I think about my thoughts, my passions and emotions, my words, my deeds, in all those varied categories, I ought to be expecting uh, gradually, but nonetheless increasing growth in godliness. Again, not always everywhere, but somewhere and over time in different parts of, of the totality of my being. And, uh, you know, I, I think one thing that we can easily forget is that this can come not only by actually uh, increasingly doing right, living devotedly to God and spurning sin, but also increasingly as we even respond more rightly to when we don't live right. Uh, so, for instance, you see this in the Bible. I mean, uh, someone like David, who's a man after God's own heart, is not just a man after God's own heart because he always does right or he lives a more godly, pious life than others. It's very plain, and Scripture in no way sugarcoats the fact that David does horrific things. But even when he does horrific things and he is brought to realization through the ministry of the prophet, the contrition uh, the remorse, the, the deep and profound sorrow and lament and, and, you know, just transparent confession before the Lord that's found in a text like Psalm 51 shows real growth. A, a natural sinner doesn't define their screw-ups in those categories. It's one thing to have problems. It's another thing to voice the kind of confession of sin uh, and, and lament over not not what's going around in circumstance, but what is really an indwelling problem that only God can deliver him from. And so I would say, especially to younger Christians and to those who sometimes worry about assurance, uh, we don't want to just be misanthropic, but we do want to identify that growing remorse at our own sin is a sign of maturity, not immaturity. And we don't want to dwell and linger there without then moving to the cross and finding that God provides an answer and he longs to deliver us from that. But the fact that we do feel shame, the fact that we do feel sorrow, the fact that we do feel like we have been removed from some form of God's presence, that's a good signal. It's like your nervous system functioning appropriately. And you don't want to sit there just feeling pain. You want to be prompted to action. And so remorse and confession are a great motivating impulse to the next step of devotion and repentance and godliness. And that's a good thing. That's the way God brings life. He kills and he makes alive. And that's the pattern continually that we suffer small deaths and we find that by God's spirit, uh, they are the next step to growth and to his strengthening. And so we just need to get used to that. And realize that's the way he works, taking us down and then bringing us up again. Um, as far as resources, you know, I, I think the catechism in question 88 is so helpful in talking about those means of grace. The, you know, God can work in all sorts of ways. And so this isn't to restrict the divine hand, yeah. but God promises to work in certain ways. And uh, I'm wise to put myself where he has said he will typically work. Uh, and so the various means of grace or rhythms and practices of not just me as a Christian, but the community, the congregation as a whole, are really going to be the center of, of my 
attempt to grow in godliness and, and what I'd counsel any woman or man uh, to be doing as well, to be tending to the ministry of the word, um, to, to be devoted to prayer, to be regularly participating in the sacramental life of the church. Uh, those especially, as well as wider practices, other good things, Sabbath, fasting, fellowship, works of mercy, etc., but especially those things that Scripture itself prioritizes and emphasizes, um, those are just crucial. That's where Jesus tells us that the Word of Christ dwells richly, or where uh, he also, through Paul, tells us uh, that we can be filled by the Holy Spirit. So I look at texts like Colossians 3 or Ephesians 5, and, and I see sort of the ordinary Christian life that can bring such fullness and such richness and that's where I want to be, because oftentimes I feel empty, and oftentimes I feel pretty parched. Um, and so I want to ask, where can I be where God promises to act in ways that answer and provide? We try to encourage our listeners to like help understand these different concepts and what we call continue the conversation. You know, like yep. they just they listen to this podcast, they're like, all right, now I get it. You know, I, sanctification check. You know, walked in, right. go get a Starbucks or something. Um, so what are some, you know, you wrote a book about it, but uh, what are some resources out there that just uh, help our listeners continue this conversation? Right. Yeah. So my book would not be the first step somebody wants uh, to go to. It's yeah. going to be a more advanced and at times rather technical discussion. Um, so I don't want to inflict that on somebody <laughs> who's finding their way into this conversation. Um, I'd recommend three things and and each has its own different benefits and together they would guide and prod and resource you. Uh, the first would be to say uh, a section from Calvin's Institutes that you can get in a very small paperback edition. The little book on the Christian life is remarkable in talking about the Christian life and how it involves self-denial and what an important thing for all of us in an age where we're told to do anything but deny ourselves. Uh, I, I teach through it every year. I find it to be one of the, just the most significant texts on being a Christian in the modern world. Um, secondly, if you want a broader book on sanctification, uh, don't grab mine. Grab a, a small little book by a colleague of mine, Sinclair Ferguson, titled Devoted to God. And it's a really good, hey, Tommy's got it right in front of him. Um, it's a wonderful uh, small book that, that gives you sort of the map of biblical teaching. And it's a great entryway into the subject. Uh, more wide-ranging than Calvin's little section is. Uh, and then third, one that I think really challenges and confronts and provokes and then points us to a particular scripture passage that all of us ought to be continually alert to, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, would be Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, he's a, a Lutheran, and I'm not, so there's certain things where I disagree. But I, I just think it's so profoundly helpful to point us to one of those classic texts that describes the, the blessed or happy life, the way Jesus calls us to live, uh, how that relates to the Old Testament, the wider teaching of Scripture. Uh, and most of it's a, a long exposition of the Sermon on the Mount from a brilliant, perceptive, and, and godly person who had such a remarkable life as well as a, a legacy of his texts and writings. So those would be three rather different resources. Uh, and I think all of them repay reading for new, new initiates to this conversation, as well as those who've been part of it for a while. 
Well, thank you for getting the listeners' feet wet, and thank you for wetting our appetites for, for more on sanctification. We thoroughly appreciate it and appreciate all the work that you're doing down there at the O, as Tommy affectionately calls it. Um, so, Dr. Allen, thanks again for, for joining us. Thanks, guys. Great to be with you and glad for what you're doing. And glad to have all of our listeners uh, tuning in. Once again, we appreciate you. Uh, give us feedback. Uh, let us know how the podcast is going, and we hope that you uh, avail yourself of all the resources we talked about today and share this episode with friends who have questions about sanctification. With that, we look forward to talking to you next. Till then, keep it short. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God And are enabled more and more to die Unto sin and live unto righteousness What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness